What's your mom? A working mom. And what did she write? The working the mom. The working mom blueprint. blueprint. And what should they do? Go buy, buy it today. The Working Mom Blueprint is now available wherever books are sold. Go grab it for yourself, for a friend, for a sister, for a colleague, so we can help working moms, all moms, to thrive, not just survive on their motherhood journey. Welcome to the Modern Mommy Dog Podcast. I'm Dr. Whitney Caceres. I'm a full-time pediatrician and a full-time modern mom. I speak and write about equipping mamas to raise resilient, healthy children and to invest in their own social-emotional health along the way. Each week, we'll give you the practical tools you need to win at parenting without losing yourself. Welcome back to the Modern Mommy Doc Podcast. Today, my guests are Sam Goldstein and Robert Brooks, who are the authors of Tenacity in Children. You know that here at Modern Mommy Doc, we are all about helping moms thrive, first and foremost, because we know that helps kids thrive. But we also want to dig into specifically what are things we can do for our kids to help to promote their resilience, their ability to be those strong, competent, self-efficacious adults. So today I have some experts here to help me with that. Doctors Goldstein and Brooks, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Of course. Okay, so I want to dig in first to your stories. Tell us about yourselves and what brought you to write this book. We'll, we'll make this very uh, personal. Sam and I met almost 30 years ago, and a lot of this is in the book with me, almost 30 years ago, and we found that we shared many uh, interests in common, and we've had hundreds and hundreds of dialogues over those 30 years, and we shared especially an interest in the theme of resilience together, and uh, after a uh, collaborating for a while, we wrote out our first book, Raising Resilient Children, where we talked about how could we help kids to be less stressed and more resilient. That led to, I think Sam could fill you in, he's more accurate about, this is now our 14th book together. And after writing that book, this is a quick summary, uh, and continuing still to enjoy each other's company, uh, <laughs> writing several other books. Uh, and then we decided that in order to, to be resilient, another component was that kids had to be, we had written about this, also show self-discipline, to be able to think before you act so that parents could help kids to be resilient and to bounce back from adversity. And in the meantime, we wrote some textbooks and we continue to enjoy our collaboration, which exists to this day. And at this point, probably a couple of years ago, uh, Sam approached me, maybe it was longer, with the idea for tenacity in children. 
And at first I had some questions. I didn't want it to be a repeat of our earlier books. Uh, but Sam, who I called the walking encyclopedia of the duo, has, has done a fair bit of research about this notion of tenacity and the instincts that were there. And based on Sam's input, and as I started to do more research, the book took shape. Now, at this point, I'm going to turn to Sam because he was the one who first came forth with this idea. And uh, I have like, I'm laughing, probably a thousand pages of correspondence between us, plus (laughs) many phone calls as we really tried to sort this out. And one of the good things that came from the pandemic was most of our writing uh, was during uh, the pandemic. So I'll turn to my dear colleague, Sam Goldstein, to talk about what led him to bring this idea to us so that we could then collaborate on what I consider to be, I'm very prejudiced, a very wonderful book. So uh, I always learn something from Bob when I listen to him speak. Both of us speak and travel quite extensively. And when Bob mentioned the uh, adversity of the pandemic and the opportunity for us to write, it was in part because we weren't traveling. I still uh, run a clinic. This is the 41st year of our clinic. We see five or 600 children a year with brain injuries and genetic disorders. It's university affiliated here in Salt Lake City. We didn't close. I stayed open during the pandemic, but I didn't travel and Bob didn't travel. So that, that was the opportunity to write. Uh, Bob and I had known each other because our paths crossed at conferences where we both were speaking. We had lunch one day uh, and discussed our interest in what was right about children, that we both come to the same conclusion on different paths. Uh, Myself as a neuropsychologist, seeing children with neurological and genetic problems, Bob seeing children with significant adversity as often as a consequence of of environmental challenges. and, and we'd come to the conclusion that what was wrong with children told us where they were, but didn't tell us much about where they were going, and that assets were much better predictors than liabilities. And I will tell you that at that lunch, I proposed to Bob that we write a book together. Bob uh, graciously declined. He didn't have a great experience, I guess, working with his previous co-author on another book. Uh, and then that evening, he called me and informed me that his wife told him that he it would be a big mistake to not write a book with me because this is my 54th book. Bob's probably up to about 30, but I'd written quite a bit before he and I uh, joined forces. So we wrote together and Raising Resilient Children is still our bestseller. 20 years later, we can't convince the publisher to do a second edition because it seems to be as current today as, as it was 20 years ago. Okay. So we wrote Raising Resilient Children with the idea of, of, of managing what's, what cha- challenges children have, but building on whatever assets they have. And the idea was that the more challenges or adversities a child experiences, the more important assets become in predicting their outcome. Now, that is held true in longitudinal studies, that the best outcome predictors for children with learning or emotional or developmental problems are not... The, the amount or the extent of treatments they receive, but rather whatever assets they possess and what opportunities are offered to them to take advantage of those assets as they transition into adult life. So our interest in, is more about what's right than what's wrong. I think we in part primed the field. We weren't the only ones. But even thinking back, I just had a discussion this morning with a parent that 30 years ago uh, with this particular child, we would say this is a child 
with anxiety. And now we put the liability in front of the child and we say, this is an anxious child. We've pathologized nearly everything in childhood under the erroneous assumption that if we fix what's wrong, we make everything better. But the data really hasn't supported that. It's a misperception. So just one more minute coming forward. So we wrote Raising Resilient Children. Everybody seems to like that. Uh, and, you know, people sit by the fires you make and the paths you uh, forge. And it's interesting to Bob and I how many people now talk about resilience. There's even a makeup by Estee Lauder called Resilient. Uh, I'm amazed about how many people don't understand that it's not about recovery. It's about functioning well under adversity. Uh, so it's very different than what a lot of people think. What we found over the years that knowing what to do and doing what you know were not always equivalent. And that if you didn't possess the self-discipline or the self-regulation or the self-control, either in your temperament or in your opportunities through experience, that you might know what it takes to be resilient, how to think, how to feel, how to behave, but you didn't, you were, you were too impulsive, you were in too much of a hurry to do what you knew. And that led us to the idea of self-discipline, which was the second component in this developmental triad we talk about. Uh, and then over a number of years, I was uh, always dissatisfied with our inability to integrate the biology into an understanding. Not that biology is destiny, just affects probability. Um, and I worked on this for a while and I came to Bob with it and it took Bob a while because I, I had to expose him to the literature. He hadn't looked at that literature. And, and here we're talking about instincts. The word tenacity we drafted, we searched for a word that hadn't been used in the literature that we could use as a tagline for these instincts. There isn't a tenacity instinct. It's an umbrella that we're using to describe these seven instincts. And, and here we're talking about instinct, not as a bird building a nest or a, a fish swimming upstream, but as a genetic predisposition to behave in a certain way, to feel in a certain way, to interact in a certain way with the right push from the environment. Um, think about learning to speak. If a child isn't spoken to, they'll never talk, even though they have all the genes. If they're not given the opportunity to socialize, they'll never socialize. So we, we looked at the literature on behaviors like responsibility, uh, empathy, optimism, even critical thinking or problem solving, responsibility. And believe it or not, and that's what we, what we write about in the book in a way that people can understand it, there's a wonderful uh, research literature that children, when given the opportunity, will display these behaviors. Not every child will do it at the same level. Some children need a harder push like learning to speak or riding a bicycle. Uh, but, but every child is capable of this if we're smart enough to create experiences for them to blossom uh, and, and develop these, these behaviors related to the seven instincts. Okay, so I love this, and I want to break it down for people who aren't quite as scientific and, if I can say, nerdy as you and I, as all three of us, right, um, who know maybe some of the scientific lingo, because I think a lot of moms who are listening to this are kind of capturing probably parts of it, but might be thinking, I'm not sure how this relates to me and my kiddo. So what I hear you saying is... Adversity, of course, it matters. It lets us know where our kids are. It helps us see kind of what are the underlying features that might make it a little bit more difficult for a child. But that assets, 
are really the thing we should be focusing on. So our strengths of our kids, more the positive, what can we do? And in, in pediatrics, we talk a ton about strengths-based um, pediatrics, about really focusing on, sure, there's a kid who might have a ton of negative stuff going on, but gosh, do they help their sister every single day with her homework? That is a strength that we should be promoting. And then the other thing that I'm hearing you saying is that it's about genes plus environment. So it's about your genetic makeup plus what happens around you and the promotion or the encouragement that you have of those genes. And so there are instincts that every single child, some might have more propensity than others, but that can be promoted in children, which I think is so encouraging, especially for those of us who have maybe some more challenging kiddos. I have one kid who's much more challenging than the other. And I know a lot of families who follow me, parents who follow me have that. And so what I hear you saying is that it's possible to develop that sense of tenacity in kids kind of no matter what. And there are things we can actually take action on to make that happen so that they can have more success. Is that is that accurate? Did I capture it? Sure, Bob. Why don't you weigh in there? Because I was talking yeah, around. Well, you very much so. I, and I want to add to Sam's eloquent uh, description and what you had just mentioned, because there are a few key findings which I think are very encouraging. And what you just said, it's interesting. In the last week, uh, two other people who interviewed me said this book is very hopeful because it's saying that there are these instincts there that we have to nurture. So I just want to, for the listeners, bring up a few uh, important things. <laughs> Excuse me. First of all, in the resilience literature, uh, in almost every study that's been done, when you ask adults who have overcome adversity, and ask them what do they think was one of the most important things in their childhood or adolescence to help them overcome adversity. Invariably, the first answer is there was at least one person along the way who truly believed in them and stood by them. <clears throat> A Harvard report, excuse me, on the developing child in resilience said a supportive adult is, is required. So I always say to parents, Every comment you make, you know, gesture, it's going to be remembered and it's going to help kids be resilient. Never underestimate, even though biology is so important, the environmental factors that you bring in. The other interesting thing I want to talk about just a little is about assets. I think a big mistake I made in the beginning of my career was when parents came in to see me about their child who was having problems, my focus was fixed on well, they're here to see me because their kid has problems. So I could spend the first two hours, 99% of it, discussing the child's problems. When I would go up to school to discuss a child who was having problems, out of my own anxiety, I felt I, I better talk about the problems so we could, quote, fix them. It's what Sam and I talk about, you know, a deficit model. And I had this epiphany. This goes back like 35 years. I said, I'm getting depressed from these meetings. Maybe other people yeah. are. What would happen if even 10, 15 minutes, and Sam does this eloquently also, saying now that I've heard about one or two of the problems, could you tell me what you see as your child's problems are? I mean, your stre their child's strengths are, their, their beauty. I would use words like this, and a word I coined, and then we, uh, certainly Sam and I elaborate on, there are islands of competence. And what, yeah, was, I love so that. what was so incredible was, the whole tenor of the meetings changed. It wasn't that we ignored problems because you can't ignore them, 
But I found people were just much more excited, much better problem solvers. Little did I know years later, and Sam is much more tuned into, you know, the neurosciences. Years later, research was going to come out that said when you create positive emotions, it could be in your office, could be in a classroom. It actually activates parts of the brain that have to do with well-being and problem solving and self-discipline. I didn't know I was doing all that back then, but people were more willing to think about different strategies, more willing to look at assets. So the power of one person, hopefully many, a parent, to change the trajectory of a kid's life and the importance of looking at assets could should never be underestimated. And they're embedded in when Sam approached me with, you know, looking at the research he did with the seven assets or instincts, these assets are embedded within them. So I wanted to give a little background also of the yeah. transformation that occurred in my life that hopefully made me a better father, now grandfather, and a better therapist. Yeah, for and, sure. And, and let me add, you know, this is a I joke that the address for our clinic is 3333, because to get to see me, you have to upset, worry, or annoy at least three adults for three reasons in three settings over a minimum of three years. Uh, I did a TED talk about our mm-hmm. clinic called The Power of Resilience. It, these are, so when you when week after week you're seeing, I see four or five new cases a week, because that's what I do as assessment, you begin to realize that there, there's a, a flood of adversity and challenges for these children, uh, and and you can become drown you can drown in it as Bob pointed out, and you begin looking at assets. We have a lot of stories in the book between us because of the work we've done. We've never run out of stories, so the the stories in the tenacity book are all stories we've had over the years, but we haven't used in any other of our writings for the most part. They're all new. Now I'm still seeing lots of kids. So I'm generating even new stories. But let me, you asked a little bit about a, a parent's mindset. Uh, and for us, a mindset is a set of ideas you use to sort of interpret the world and guide your behavior. Uh, one, mm-hmm. we've assumed that children, to use the Latin, are tabla rasas, blank slates. And we have to write the, their legacy upon them. Uh, and, and here we're shifting to say, no, the learning that takes place is contingent, yes, upon their experiences, but is also powerfully contingent upon their biology. Now, let me clarify that, because when we look at identical twin studies in the 40s and 50s of last uh, century, they would adopt identical twins to different families when they were put up for adoption. And, And many years later, beginning in the late 60s and 70s, uh, researchers began looking for those children and bringing them together as adults. It's fascinating. There's been a couple of documentaries and movie made about it. And what they discovered was a little scary that nearly 70 to 80 percent of these two people, and they had four or five hundred pairs, were identical. They married women who looked the same. They had the same jobs. They wore the same clothes. They, yeah. It's a little scary. OK, so what's left? 15 to 20% of what the environment provides. And, and in the 90s, there was this uh, uh, idea book was written that, you know, that 15 to 20% isn't parents, it's peers, it's kids, you know. And, and there was a lot of controversy about, about this book that was written by a reporter, not by a, a scientist. Um, but, but here's the thing. 
if I could control 1% of the stock market or 1% of the Bitcoin price, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> so from my view, right. what people have to understand, what parents have to understand is that the 15 to 20% that you contribute equates to 100% in the course of a child's life in terms of how those genes are expressed. It's, it's, it's a mathematics that's sometimes hard to get your head around, but the example I use is the golfer Tiger Woods. Uh, if he had not had a father who from a young age put a golf club in his hand, he wouldn't be who he is today. He might be a coordinated person. Maybe he would have golfed. Who knows? But not who he is for, for better or, or worse. And that's what I try and help parents understand. Even if you impact 15 or 20 percent of, of the quality of a life of a child who worries or a child who is fearful or a child with academic achievement problems or difficulty developing self-discipline or socialization, that day in and day out experience, Bob talks about a charismatic adult, but it, sometimes it's more than one. But that day in and day out experience dramatically impacts how those genes are, are affected. So the, the foundation of the book, you know, parents really are architects, to borrow a term that the author Dan Siegel has used, of architects mm -hmm. in, in the way in which genes and experience come together. We're, we're packagers, as it were. And if we're smart enough to appreciate strengths and weaknesses in our children's temperament, we match the environmental experiences to suit that. It is time to run, not walk, to your bookstore or have your fingers do whatever is the equivalent of running to the Amazon store, to online, to purchase our new book. It's called The Working Mom Blueprint, Winning at Parenting Without Losing Yourself. It is a labor of love. I'm so excited to deliver this book baby to you and to help you really feel like you are winning at parenting without losing yourself, mama. If you want to also check it out at the library. It's there. Borrow it from a friend. However, I just want you to get this solid information so you can start thriving, not just surviving in motherhood. Wow, I, I can see how that would give parents a whole lot of relief in a couple ways. I mean, one, that there is a whole lot that is out of our control. And that we don't need to be 100% in control. Like we have to realize we're never 100% in control. We don't have just blank slates as children when they come out. They are kind of pre-programmed in some ways, like you said about the twin studies. But that I agree with you, that small percentage that we have, 20% is actually quite a lot, large percentage, but compared to the whole, that 20% that we do have a lot of influence. And um, in my world, I think a lot about for moms, how do you then show up? as a parent with your child, what do you need to do for yourself so that that way you are ready to be present, to be available, to be noticing where you can step in, where you can um, influence and and potentially be effective in, in your child. Now, you talk about, like you said, these seven instincts for lifetime success. Can you break those down for us to say what are the seven instincts that parents need to be paying attention to or aware of? Sure. And, and, and let me just add again, in the big picture, um, what I want parents to think about or what we want parents to think about is not what to do, but what opportunities do I have? It's about opportunity. Mm -hmm. 
Bob and I don't have Sam's seven secrets to, to here's what you have to do, do this, do this, do this, do that, do that. Yeah. No, it yeah. isn't about yeah. what you do. It's about creating opportunities and appreciating when we, when we say intuitive optimism or compassionate empathy, what do we mean by that? And I will tell you that, again, it's a little bit of marketing, like we pick the term tenacity as a hook, uh, rather than just use the term optimism or motivation or empathy in an effort to distinguish what we're talking about, we put a tag word in front of each of those seven. So it's intuitive optimism, it's intrinsic motivation, it's compassionate empathy. And then we explain what we mean by that. Uh, and we, I think it's a good idea to go briefly through the seven. And we also have three that we need to talk about that I think uh, are critical for parents to understand because they work in the opposite direction. And, and helping these seven express, we believe, maybe the solution to all the stuff that's going on in the world that ain't so good. And I use that term colloquially, ain't so good. Um, so young children want to help cook, clean, drive the car. We think it's cute. It really is an expression of their belief that they could do anything. Because, you know, you watch a young child learning to walk. They stand up, fall down, stand up, fall down. They cry. They get up. They keep. You and I would fall down two or three times and we'd say this walking stuff's not for us. And we'd move on to something else. So how do they know? How does it, how does a young child know if they keep making sounds, they'll speak or if they keep scribbling someday, they'll make letters. There's this intuitive optimism and you can see it in young children and you can see how cultural experiences especially for children who struggle academically, very quickly extinguishes that intuitive optimism. And young children, they go off to kindergarten, not because they like getting new clothes, but because it's another opportunity to demonstrate their capabilities. And, and you see this in children with learning disabilities or other struggles at school. By the time they reach second grade, when you ask them, do you think you can learn this or accomplish this? I just finished evaluating a young, a young man. Their answer is no, it's too hard. And that's and that's not in the genes. That's the experience. So uh, if you if you ask, well, intuitive meaning nobody teaches it to you. Optimism meaning you start believing you'll be successful. Uh, then it's easy to direct parents to, to suggest uh, create opportunities where there's a match between your child's comment. I can do this and their ability to succeed. And a lot of parents will let children try something and say, you can't do this. This is going to be too hard for you. Go ahead, try it. Mm -hmm. And then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Look, it's too hard. You can't do it. I, as opposed to saying, okay, let's try it and see what happens. And, and if you're not successful at it, let's try something else. Or let's create opportunities in which your optimism can flourish, can develop, but you don't become irrational in your belief that just because you think you can do it, you'll do everything. Right. Right. And, and so I, I'm right. so young child <laughs> says, you know, I, I can drive the car. My comment is you can't reach the pedals yet. When you can reach the pedals, we'll have that discussion, but let's see something else you can drive. Right. So that's, so mm -hmm. again, rather than say, here's the three things to do for any of these seven, I think it's more about, understanding that children will express optimism, understanding it comes from within and appreciating that you create opportunities where there's a, a, a fulfillment between their optimism 
and the outcome of their efforts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my daughter, my youngest daughter must be especially optimistic about uh, using every single ingredient in our kitchen to make <laughs> cookies. You know, she's four and she thinks she can, she's master chef. And it's funny because I think maybe this is the pediatrician in me that knows instinctually that this is like a good thing to promote. Of course we work on like containing the mess and all of that. But I'm like, yeah, girl, go do it. You know, you create right. your own thing. If I need to buy a little flour later, I'll, I'll buy it. You know what I mean? But um, but that her, you're right. You know, having that opportunity to crack the eggs herself, to, um, to maybe pull out the shell when she gets it in there herself, but to know that I believe in her and to have her develop that intrinsic, like you said, optimism to build that over time is is powerful then she wants to do it again which she's getting of course better and better and better at making right. cookies on her and they actually taste and it. as we've like written cookies. in our previous books to see mistakes as opportunities rather yeah. than as um, situations to admonish children look you see you can't do that or it's too hard for you or it's too too difficult mm-hmm. yeah that tie, <laughs> ties also uh you know i've always said resilient people see problems as things to be solved rather than overwhelmed by and we want to develop that in our kids. Should I go into the next one? All of, And these overlap to some extent, you'll see. I mean, it's not like there's seven distinct things and you say, sure, I'm open this or this. As we say throughout the book, they are really interrelated. Uh, the intrinsic motivation, so we had intuitive optimism, intrinsic motivation is actually an area I've been fascinated by in many years. I remember in graduate school, reading the work of Robert White, a psychologist at Harvard, who said that within every child from birth is the wish to master his or her environment. It's there. And, you know, you see it in so many different ways. And what Sam and I have written about is soon the intrinsic motivation, which is based on coming from within, especially once kids get to school, is often dominated by extrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Rewards with grades, rewards, rewards. And in our book, we talk about research that shows that if you reward kids for an activity, especially that they like, if you withdraw the reward, they're not going to like that activity as much. Mm -hmm. So one of the things in terms of motivation, I started to ask myself, this goes back many years, What is your theory of motivation? What leads people to change? And we use the term motivating environment in our book. And uh, and I would ask others when I gave workshops, I, I, I would say to teachers, what's your theory of motivation? And I would ask parents, what's your theory of motivation? So one of the theories we certainly highlighted in the book is a theory by two psychologists, DC and Ryan at the University of Rochester, Their theory basically is there are certain basic needs. And when these needs are met, and this is both in kids and adults, but then they are in young children. When the environment provides opportunities, Sam said, to meet these needs, kids are going to want to engage in this activity, not for a reward. The reward is intrinsic. So without spending too much time, one is that kids will be more motivated to succeed in environments where they feel a connection to the people or the environment. They feel they belong. A second main component is what DC and Ryan's theories call self-determination. Kids, I don't think you need research for this. It makes sense. Kids are going to be more likely to succeed if they feel they have some say in what they do. Like when you mentioned your daughter. Mm -hmm. 
let her throw in all the ingredients as long as they're not dangerous. Right. <laughs> when they the saffron. Like, she doesn't get to grow in the saffron. <laughs> this is parents. Do you want to take a bath first or you want to do this first? Do you want to do this first? So, but people are more motivated. It's not just kids when they feel at least my voice is being heard. We all know we don't have total control. A third need they spoke about is the need to feel competent. People are going to be want to be in environments where they feel people notice their assets. Not only notice, give them opportunities to share these assets. Not, not be re, you know, if a kid has some trouble reading but is very good at something else, you know, in art, display their artwork. Do something that shows we recognize your competencies. And the fourth need is one that really overlaps with several of the other is really uh, the need for a sense of meaning and purpose. And Sam and I talk a lot about this. We wrote in Raising Resilient Children, we think there is an inborn need need for children to want to help. Sam alluded to this. You see that two and three year olds. Can I help? Can I mow the lawn? Can I do this? And we we laugh about it. We say by the time they're nine or 10, they may not be as willing to help us as parents but they're willing to help others. As a matter of fact, I think that is one of the strongest needs. And there's research to show whether a kid is three or whether 93, there's research to show that this need for purpose or meaning actually helps people to be more resilient. So our theory of intrinsic motivation is provide a sense of belonging, make sure a person feels they have some agency or empowerment notice and really give opportunities about the competencies and give them opportunities to help others. And that's why when when school meetings, one of the first questions I would say, what does this student, especially one who's having problems, what is one thing this student feels he or she does that enriches the life of the school? Because then they want to be at the school. But it comes from with it comes from within. And I should I should note in this because Sam and I love to do this. We have he's continuing to see so many patients. I'm not so many examples. So the book is filled with very concrete examples and dialogues. So people could say, oh, this is how you say this, or this is how you do yeah. that. Right. Exactly. Because I think people could get caught up in, um, like, there's all the different messages that are coming, right? Well, don't mm. praise your kids too much. And, you know, but they should have chores. And how should I do that? So I love, I, I appreciate that. I wanted to call that out, that in the book that you do give really specific ways to dive into this so that people can look at it in a concrete way, because we don't have time to do that for every single one here. But if you read the book, then you'll see all the different examples of how to do it. Right. And, and children go off to school intuitively optimistic and intrinsically motivated, as, as Bob pointed out. And, and as a pediatrician, as you see kids who are struggling in school, ask their parents what kind of reward systems have been set in place. And the more a child struggles in school, the more extrinsically we provide consequences. So the kids with the most problems in school have these charts and these points and these, you know, and, and, and what we've done is just the opposite of what's needed. Because what's needed is when you leave that resource room after spending a half hour struggling with reading, it's not because I gave you a star on your chart that you're going to feel good. You should feel good because of what you've accomplished. We, we go just in the opposite direction, which is unfortunate, right? And it really is. And the other problem is, like when I said before, 
Asking to get to help out in school, we know actually the studies to show decreases dropouts and whatever, but who is usually asked to help younger kids or read to them? The kids who are already the A students and are doing very well. And I've often said, if you want kids to be dignified in school, give them dignified things to do. In every one of semi books, there's a chapter on empathy, but compassion empathy, as we looked at the research, it's composed of two things. And I'll just briefly mention this. Empathy is a more familiar term. Well, they're both familiar, but the capacity to put yourself inside the shoes of another person and see the world through their eyes. And it's almost impossible to be that adult supportive adult if you can't put yourselves in the shoes of uh, children. And Daniel Goleman in his work on emotional and social intelligence said empathy is one of the most important components of emotional intelligence. But as we looked at some of the research, the compassionate was interesting, how some researchers defined it. So they would talk about empathy, putting yourself inside the shoes of another person. But compassion was then taking that understanding and being compassionate and helping others. So mm-hmm. it's two distinct things that went closely together. And just because of the time, I will mention this again, when Sam came with this idea, this is one area I knew a little more about. It is amazing that infants are already showing, I, I don't want to sound crazy here, but already showing the rudiments of empathy. That if a kid is crying, an infant and another, it actually impacts on how the, the ch- infant hearing the crying, what's going on in their brain. So mm-hmm. it was a lot of fun when Sam presented some of these ideas. And then when I did some of you know my own research to see it is there. It is really yeah. there signs of compassion are there. They're not taught. And so in the book, I'll end with this, we give many examples of how parents could nurture it, how parents could model it and give kids opportunities in this regard. Uh, but the good news is these these are there. As Sam had mentioned, maybe in different quantities in different kids, but they are there. Yeah. And as parents, we have to nurture this kind of instinct. And one of the most important things I've always found is how do we model it? So I'll I'll stop there because we could spend hours. No, I mean, I think, you know, at Modern Mommy Doc, like a number one goal is to try to help our moms to nurture that sense of um, mindful self-compassion for themselves Mm -hmm. so that they come from a place where they're not that mean critic of themselves. They're that positive coach themselves, but also because we are hoping that that will model, we know, not hope, we know that models to their kids a way of being to themselves, of being kind to themselves. And then that we know when the kids are kinder to themselves, when they have that better sense of self, then they're able to be more empathetic to other people. So um, absolutely, that compassion to yourself and to other people well, is... I'm so glad... Oh, my number one. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm so glad you said that because in the chapter on compassion, we have a whole section on the research about self-compassion. And we yep. say the same thing that you just mentioned. In order to be, help kids develop compassion... We give a case example, actually, of a parent who was not self-compassionate and the kid picked up on it because the parent wanted the kid to be kind. To, there was a girl to herself and the girl basically said, well, look how you speak to your, you know, about how you act towards yourself. So it's very important to be self-compassionate. I want to talk about simultaneous intelligence because it's the one <clears throat> that's really very different mm-hmm. that people have not heard of. For, uh, I'm fairly certain most parents have never heard of. But, you know, the, the, the others, um, you know, altruism, responsibility and fairness 
are things people have heard about. We'll, we'll probably take a little bit of time, but let me just quickly tell you, I don't use the word intelligence much anymore because for thousands of years, intelligence was defined as how well you solved a problem, not how well you could read or complete math sure. or write or spell. Um, you know, the, the, our schools have co-opted the idea of intelligence to include not just critical thinking or problem solving, but also academic achievement. And, and, and I don't see the reason for that because I'm not sure that your level of reading and math and spelling, it may correlate some with your level of thinking, but it's not a, a gigantically great predictor. And by the school's definition of giftedness, prior to the 1800s, there were no gifted people in the world because mm-hmm. no one went to school, people couldn't read. Mm-hmm. So there must, be, there must be some other phenomena here. The word uh, that I use is simultaneous, which is borrowed from a theory of, of uh, uh, neuropsychological functioning, how the brain works by A.R. Luria, who's a Russian neuropsychologist, one of the fathers of neuropsychology. And neuropsychology, just so your listeners understand, a school psychologist determines your eligibility for services. A clinical psychologist determines your diagnosis. Mm-hmm. A neuropsychologist wants to know why. Mm. They want, and not why in terms of your life experiences, but why in terms of your patterns of strengths and weaknesses and how you go about interfacing with the world. Mm-hmm. So I use the word simultaneous. And in the book, we offer examples and a great story of a little girl who is really uh, uh, reasonably functional in a lot of ways but struggled with critical thinking and people couldn't understand why she was having so much trouble in school. Simultaneous is just as it sounds. Uh, And I'm putting my fingers together, clenching them together here, uh, seeing all the variables at the same time. So creativity is thinking outside of the box. Mm -hmm. Good simultaneous intelligence is leaving no piece of information inside the box unconsidered as you solve a problem. So if I say 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, you only need to know 10 to predict 12. It's a predictable sequence. If I say 1, 3, 6, 10, 15, and then ask what number comes next, the only way you can predict the number is 21 is by appreciating that the gap between every pair of numbers keeps increasing by 1. If I remove a single number, you can't figure that out. If I offer you 10 facts about an animal and you randomly pick three, you may choose an animal that matches the three, but doesn't match the remaining seven. And and I developed tests. And one of the tests I've developed with uh, colleagues, Jack Naglieri and JP Das, is called the Cognitive Assessment System. And it looks at these kinds of critical thinking abilities, sequencing, planning, attention to detail, and simultaneous ability. It is uh, among the most widely used tests in many states in the schools because it's not biased against experience that traditional intelligence tests contain vocabulary, information, comprehension about the world. Uh, First off, I don't know what those have to do with intelligence. They have to do with opportunity. And minority children are going to come up short on those kinds of tests, which is why in the state of California, you can't use those tests because they overrepresent minorities as intellectually handicapped. And in our test, the cognitive assessment system, we've we've looked at Aboriginal kids in the outback, affluent kids in suburbia, and at the same ages, kids perform the same way. So we're really measuring an innate ability to think or sequence or plan 
or attend to detail, not what you've experienced so much over time. And, and the good news is that we've always looked at intelligence as set in stone. This is your IQ, that's it. Um, this is a different way of looking at intelligence. And in fact, in the book, we go through um, a number of interesting research studies that have demonstrated you can teach kids to think critically. And when you do that, there's carryover. In other words, one of the challenges in trying to teach kids thinking abilities is whatever you teach them doesn't generalize. So if I teach you a certain kind of problem solving, you have a hard time applying it in other circumstances. But now we've developed ways of teaching kids critical thinking that does generalize. And I can teach you a way to problem solve that will work equally in social studies as in English or in your algebra class. And, and there's wonderful research to say it makes kids smarter because it's a different way of looking at intelligence, right? It's, it's, a, it's a problem solving approach. And in the book, we offer some strategies. This is in its infancy. It's taken the world a while. Most of the psychologists that you may refer to in your pediatric practice will still give a standard IQ test that contains measures of vocabulary and information, and, and they really have nothing to do with quality of life and intelligence. So that's simultaneous intelligence, which is a new way of, I think most parents haven't, haven't heard about that. And we offer some guidelines, and, and I tell parents, Google critical thinking, teaching kids critical thinking, and you'll find all of these wonderful websites that are fairly credible, not trying to sell you something. Right. Oh, uh, that offer ideas and strategies. Yeah. For, for yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I mean, I think it's much more of a, like, give a, you know, child a fish they eat for a day, teach a child the fish they eat for a lifetime, right? You're teaching them basically to be able to apply this critical thinking and problem solving in all of these different areas of, of life um, and in academic study as well, but probably more importantly in life. <laughs> right. And it works. I mean, the emerging literature and for parents who are concerned about their children's uh, future post high school academic career, their grades go up. Right. Right. Okay. So did we hit on all of them? I know we didn't talk about every single one. Just, you know what? Let me just mention quickly altruism and responsibility okay. in two minutes and then Sam could take the fairness. Is that okay, Sam? Sure. Okay. Yeah, the altruism, uh, basically what we're saying there is, again, there is this, we briefly mentioned before, this inborn need to help others and in, and in a way without re expecting any reciprocity back. Mm -hmm. And here also, wonderful research to show kids a year and a half, if someone is having difficulty, they will go and help that person with whatever the difficult situation is. But if that person, this is what's amazing, some of the research, if that person, let's say they drop something, the kid senses they could pick it up themselves, the person who dropped something, mm -hmm. they won't run over. It's they already they already can sense the distress if you can't do something and they will go to help. And so altruism really ties also to, you know, as we said, they overlap to compassion, empathy, and it is there from birth. That's what the research, you know, shows. Virtuous responsibility is also fascinating. Sim and I talk a lot in the book that more and more people do not take responsibility for their actions. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we're saying is a key component here is not only displaying moral behavior, uh, part of it, uh, and ethical, but you really, if something doesn't go right, you have the courage, I would say, 
And you have the comfort in being able to say, okay, I made a mistake. You know, books about leadership talk about good leaders being humble, good leaders taking responsibility in that regard. Well, as we showed, those qualities are there. Parents could really help. We give, I think this is a chapter, Sam, we give an extended case study because of kids not taking responsibility, but parents having to learn that. So what we try to do throughout the book is use these cases to illustrate specific strategies, real life families in this regard. So genuine altruism and virtuous responsibility, what we're saying is they're there. We have to cultivate them. And Sam, you want to take the very last one as measure? Sure. And, and one of my favorite things with parents, because I take a lot of histories, uh, is when a parent will say, well, my son's not very responsible. And, and I always clarify uh, about what? Well, he's not doing his homework. Well, is, are there other areas in his life where he's responsible? Is he sticking up 7-Elevens? Is he staying out late and drinking? Is he? No, 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 no. And I said, well, so... It isn't that he's not responsible. It's that he's having trouble getting his homework completed. And, but, but we make that jump right away. You're not doing your homework. You don't do your chores. You're not responsible. Right. right? We, we have a way. Words are very powerful. I can call Bob Slow. His, his darling wife, Marilyn, can call him careful because she adores him. <laughs> we have different opinions about the same behavior, right? Right. And in right. fairness, measured fairness, why is fairness such a big deal? I have three dogs and, and I, they're sisters. They've grown up together. They're six years old. I line them up and I give them a treat. And two out of the, tr- two out of the three treats is something they really like. And one of them is not a bad treat, but whichever dog I give the unpreferred treat to, the other two grab their treat and go off to eat it. And whichever one, there's Daisy, Dolly, and Sugar, sisters, just sits there and looks at me like, you must be kidding Right. Where's one that the other fairness is. And and when you think about our history as as homo sapiens, which is maybe 60, 70,000 years or our human ancestors going back to Homo erectus a few million years ago, fairness was a big deal. Because if you weren't fair to the people in your family group, eventually you'd have problems. Right. And and, and society suddenly maybe 10,000 years ago came to the conclusion that some people could do things better than others. And therefore, I'm going to compensate you more. And, and what better example than, uh, you know, the entertainment industry, sports, movies, television. These people are paid insane amounts of money. Why? Well, partly because somebody else can make a lot of money. But the other part of it is because they can do something very well other people can't do. Uh, and, and so... The fairness is a big deal. And, and we'll tell kids, well, life's not fair and expect them to just go, oh, OK, I agree. No, they but but it's in our genes, this idea of, of fairness. And, and the other side of it's also in our genes is it's fair if I have an advantage. It's not fair if you have the advantage. Right. So we tend to look at it from sort of a one sided view. So what we try and do is help parents understand that this is an instinctual drive in kids. It's part of the drive that relates to sibling rivalry. And, and, and you have to understand it. And for some kids, fairness is a very big deal. And you create opportunities rather than just admonishing them, well, it's not fair. Sometimes I'll have siblings complain to me 
about the kid I'm working with. They'll, I'll have the kid I'm working with bring a sibling and the sibling will say, oh, he makes a mess and he's such a problem. And, and my response is, well, do you want to walk in his shoes? Do you, do you, would you want to be him for a day? Uh, and yes, it's, it hurts the kid to hear that, but, but, but the, the sibling has to say no. I said, well, then if you don't want to deal with the, with the struggles that he experiences, then you have to have some empathy for him. You have to help them as opposed to just complain about it. So we offer some ideas about how to respond to fairness beyond just saying, life's not fair, get over it. I'm going to dig into the fairness chapter because I think my kids, I got to go, I got to go a little deeper into this. I feel like moms are going to be 100% like, let me read the fairness chapter because that's a big deal. Okay, go ahead. Say your last thing. Well, I the hear- last thing, there's three other instincts <coughs> that... Um, I think helped us survive over millions of years that in today's world are responsible for nearly everything, if not everything that's wrong. And they are belief, fear of difference, and an aggressive response to real or perceived threat. Belief's a valuable ally in the absence of fact. Some people hold on to their beliefs even when facts are on the table. For, for hundreds of thousands of years, you had to believe the sun would come up the next day. You had to believe the weather would turn warm. You had to believe you'll find sufficient sustenance to survive. And I'm not anti-religion. I'm not. But look at what belief is doing when it's used as a weapon to bludgeon other people's religion or politics or ethnicity or skin color. So, And, and what we're arguing is reinforcing the other seven pushes these three out of the way. We call them the unholy trinity. So that belief, the second one, is fear of difference. I don't care what anybody says. I understand that young children culturally pick up the, this, this idea of difference in skin color, in, in ethnicity, in religion. But there is an instinctual underpinning because for, for hundreds of thousands of years, you ate from the same place, you drank the same water source, you didn't interact with the family tribe across the, the, the valley because they would kill you and eat you, mm-hmm. right? You know, we, so that's two. And three is an aggressive response to real or perceived danger. And, and the term that I use, I borrowed from a, a, a colleague. Um, uh, what's her last, I'm blocking on her last name. Um, her first name's Sydney. She wrote a book called Brain Dancing. And, and I borrowed the term that we're always brain dancing. Any of us are always on the edge to any real or perceived threat. Even the, the kindest among among us mm-hmm. are, are on the edge. So those three, belief, fear of difference, and an aggressive response to real or perceived threat. So you look at the news tonight and tell me if one, two, or all three of those are not responsible for the majority of challenges we see in the world today. And I, uh, Bob and I think the solution is these seven instincts. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, we could have a whole podcast just on that because that's super interesting. You guys, this has been so great. Thank you for being here. I know that all of the moms and also the professional healthcare providers that listen to this podcast are going to love this resource that you're giving us. It's called Tenacity in Children, Nurturing the Seven Instincts for Lifetime Success. Tell us where folks can find the book, where they can find out more about you. So the book is in all the booksellers. We have a website, just tenacityinchildren.com. You can watch some other webinars. Uh, 
we each have uh, our own websites, just samgoldstein.com or Dr. Dr. No period, Dr. Robert Brooks. Dot com. And uh, we would love, as you're a practicing pediatrician, you should have more of our books. So yeah. we would love to send you a couple of our other books and maybe another time come back on and talk about self-discipline or talk about resilience. Yeah, absolutely. Send them all to me. You have my address. You guys, thank you so much for being here and talk soon. Thanks for Pleasure having us here. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Hey mama, if you want more of the Modern Mommy Dog podcast, make sure that you click subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. We'd also be so honored if you shared with your friends and on social media with the hashtag Modern Mommy Dog. If you share about something that inspired you or that you learned from the podcast, we'll be sure to share it on our social media as well. Thanks for listening.